Welcome to the Think Christian podcast, where we talk about faith and pop culture, because there's no such thing as secular. I'm Josh Larson, your host and senior producer at thinkchristian.net. So we recently wrapped up our series of episodes celebrating the best pop culture of 2023. And I've been happy to hear that those episodes struck a chord with some of you. We got this kind review from Langsta over at Apple Podcasts. I love the variety of the topics and recommendations. The contributors have wonderful insights, and I want to be friends with all of them. The episodes equip and encourage me to have deeper conversations with the things most people are talking about anyway. Well, thank you, Langsta. You can absolutely be our friend. Those best of shows, they are some of the most fun ones to put together. Be sure to check those out if you miss them. You can find them in our podcast feed or over on our YouTube channel. And if you like Langsta, would be so kind to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We would greatly appreciate it. Now, on to 2024, and we're going to start that with a series, looking at a series that just wrapped up its fifth season in January. That would be FX's Fargo. When that final episode of this fifth season was released, I heard all sorts of chatter about the theology-soaked aspects of it. So I went back and watched the entire fifth season, and I can't wait to discuss it with Abiel Chessy and J.R. Foresteros. Though, apologies in advance, there will not be a Minnesotan accent among us. A confession to make, not to... Jared Foresteros and Abiel Chessy, who are joining me, and they already know this, but to listeners, really. And this is appropriate, I think, for a conversation I know is going to turn to the topic of debts and forgiveness. Season five of Fargo, the first season I watched of the show. So apologies for that, that I'm a latecomer to this, but I hope I have some leeway because this, this is an anthology series. So each season follows a different storyline. I was told it'd be fine if I jumped in late. All of these storylines, though, they are set in the same location as the series Inspiration, and that is the 1996 Coen Brothers crime film Fargo, which takes place along the border of Minnesota and North Dakota. Now, Abby, Jar, are you guys both Fargo completists? I'm pretty sure you are, Abby, right? I'm actually not. This was the first oh, season okay. that I had watched in its entirety. Um, I had seen bits and pieces of previous episodes, including I really should have watched the Kansas City season, but they didn't film it here and it didn't get great reviews. So I decided mm. to be real fickle about it and skip it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you have a little more experience than me, but have been jumping in and out. How about you, JR? Oh, yeah. You betcha. I was uh, oh, for sure. Uh, no, I did. I, I actually, we actually kind of dropped the Kansas City season after about three episodes and just we didn't quit it. We just forgot to go back to it because it was <laughs> forgettable. Mm. Um, but everything. Yeah, I've watched all of the rest of it. Love the show. Uh, big Coen Brothers fan also. And so I've been following, you know, since, you know, they were first talking about how Noah Hawley wanted to make a Fargo series and the Coen Brothers were not interested. And so he like met with them and showed them his pitch and won them over. And, you know, I like I. Yeah. 
Love it yeah, all. Se- series creator, Noah Hawley, definitely has the blessing of the Coen brothers, worth stating, um, for this this entire and very successful project, five seasons now. Uh, Abby, maybe we'll start with here, with you, because, you know, you did suggest that season five, after watching it, as a good topic for the podcast, you messaged me and you said, now that it's completed and that final scene, oh my gosh, I think it would be great to <laughs> dig into the themes of trauma, guilt, sin, and forgiveness. And yeah, that wasn't all caps, oh my gosh, that we got from you there, Abby, in that message. We're going to get to the final episode for sure. But first, maybe if you don't mind, set up the basic premise for season five for us here, for those who uh, are listening, maybe didn't watch or considering watching. What's the basic premise here? And then, yeah, tell me what you thought of the season in general. Sure. Um, so I think it's it's worth noting that most of the seasons of Fargo and JR, you can correct me if I'm wrong, have at least some kind of plot similarity to Fargo the movie. And this one definitely does. Um, so our main character is Dot Lyon, played by Juno Temple. She is a stay-at-home mom and her husband, Wayne, is a car dealer. So if you've watched the Fargo movie, you can see that there's some similarities there. Um, and in the first episode, she is suddenly and unceremoniously kidnapped from her home and manages to um, eventually fend off the attackers and turns out to be, uh, as one of the characters that we will talk about later, describes her a tiger and uh, makes it back home, but is very weird and cagey about the fact that it happened at all or where she went or what happened. And it turns out that that reason is because she has a uh, pretty difficult past with uh, another character, Roy Tillman, played by John Hamm, who is a uh, sheriff in North Dakota and is kind of in the um, the rancher libertarian mold that kind of became internet infamous in like the late 2010s. And he was her former husband and very abusive. And so she is trying to evade that past and make a new life for herself, which she has successfully been able to do so far. But he is kind of adamant that she is going to come back to him and he is going to finish whatever it is he started with her. Um, And all of this brings into just a a very big, varied cast of characters. There is a semi-immortal hitman um, named Ula Munk, who becomes really important in like the last couple of episodes. There is Roy's son, Gator, played by Joe Curie. Also Dot's mother-in-law, played by uh, Jennifer Jason Lee, who is a super conservative uh, woman and a uh, professional debt consolidator. She's made a lot of money consolidating other people's debts. That also becomes important. Um, And varied members of law enforcement, all of whom have varying interests in Dot and her case, which I know that sounds kind of sprawling, but it is kind of a sprawling season. Yeah, you did a good job, though. That, that I you. think, <laughs> gives us the groundwork really well. And, and yeah, so obviously you thought this was pro- provocative, enjoyed it, but tell, tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah. Uh, so there are a lot of kind of thematic threads going through this season, one of which in a major way is the concept of debt. Um, and the concept of paying debt and forgiving debt. Uh, I think it's it's really interesting that throughout the show, you see varying versions of that from Jennifer Jason Lee's character, Lorraine, um, talking to another character, a policewoman named Indira, about her mounting debt and uh, whether or not she should be responsible for that debt, even though a lot of it is really not her fault. And also the question of 
Dot's relationship to to Roy and the kind of debt of trauma that exists between the two of them, the uh, the code that Ula Munk has for um, for himself, which is also based in a deep rooted trauma that we find out, um, I think, in like the third or fourth episode of the season, and then comes home to roost in the fifth episode, or no, sorry, not the fifth episode, the finale, <laughs> the tenth episode. Also, just a lot of subtler ways, like I noticed um, Roy and Gator the. Uh, the ammo shop that they frequent is called Hammurabi. So like, there's a lot of that Uh, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. A man's got to have a code, stuff like that. And um, Mm. how the finale kind of all brings it together in terms of what we deserve, what we owe each other and the concept of dealing with trauma and forgiving of debt. Yeah, absolutely. A through line. Um, That's for sure. JR, is that one of the things that stood out to you about the season? Absolutely. I, I, especially, I was talking to a friend who said that he thought that the season was a little heavy handed. And I said, well, you know, we, we don't live in unsubtle times. That, that's the, that's the problem, right? Uh, you have a Roy, Roy Tillman, who is this alpha male militia type. He calls himself a constitutionalist sheriff, which I can rant about that at length later, I'm sure. Uh, but he, he keeps talking about how uh, Nadine, which is Dot's, I guess, birth name or whatever, you know, before she ran away and changed her name. Uh, that's, uh, he keeps talking about what she owes him as someone who made vows to him and before God. Right. And so yeah. he cloaks all of his, he cloaks all of his power and his desires in religion, you know, and, and in the authority vested in him by the voters who elected him sheriff, then of course, by God and so, yeah, he, he wears all of that as armor to allow him to do whatever he wants to do. And there's a scene, I think at the, the second episode is where we really meet Roy officially. We get some flashes of him in the first, but it's when the FBI agents first come up. Uh, uh, what a Joaquin and Mrs. Joaquin, I think he calls them uh, in, in the most derisive way possible because they're trying to actually get him to follow the law and enforce the law. And he, you know, steadfastly refuses based on his quote unquote obligations to his voters. Right. And it's, it's just this very, uh, it's this very interesting way that the people who have power over debt can wield it, not, not to do what they are obligated to do by being the ones who loaned. Right. Uh, and I think that goes to the finale. The other really powerful scene besides the the final one that we're going to talk about in a moment is the one between Lorraine and Roy, where she explains how she is wielding debt as a weapon to to emasculate him and to torment him and to get revenge on him. And it's such a powerful counterpoint to the the final scene, you know, Uh, Mm. and, and the way debt is resolved in that scene that I found it incredibly moving. And to to the point you made about Abby's you know sprawling explanation, so much of this without ever feeling confusing or uh, distracting, I just kind of wondered how it was all going to come together, you know, because there is just so much happening in, in the in the show, and yeah, I thought the last couple of episodes really brought everything together in ways that I found incredibly satisfying and deeply deeply meaningful. Uh, and and ironically, for a series that is so cynical as the Coens tend to be, was actually profoundly mm. hope-filled. Mm-hmm. That thematic coherence you're talking about, 
I, I think that I think it was a strength of the season for sure for me. But I, I have to make another confession for you guys. I really struggled with this. I really, really? struggled with this. And I need, I'm going to need the two of you to help bring me around here. Uh, I wish I had a more sophisticated objection, but it came down to just, as I said, my first exposure to the series, an almost allergic reaction to all the Coen brothers references. Uh, I, I didn't realize <laughs> it would be this one-to-one. And, and this frequent, and I found myself as the dialogue bits being lifted from movies, the character traits being lifted from movies, uh, just, I, I almost started getting itchy and I adjusted <laughs> a little bit. I eventually adjusted a little bit, but let me just, for those who aren't familiar, give a few examples of the ones that, that I, I really, you know, even the music, when you think about the music mm -hmm. here, which you have a Jeff Russo composing and riffing on that great Carter Burwell score from Fargo the film. But it's just, it just does, it has less of the momentous heft here. It's, it's there, and that's nothing about the, the artistry or the creativity or the work. It's just, that's going to happen, at least for me. You mentioned uh, the deputy um, played by Risha Morjani, and she adopts this Marge like accent that is maybe even more ridiculous mm -hmm. than Francis McDormand's Marge. And, and she's not the first character to do so in that series. So there's yes, that too. <laughs> I would imagine that's been a recurring. I'm curious yeah. to hear, you know, what you guys say about this, um, whether this is new, if all of this is stronger in season five or it's always been like this. You know, we mentioned the the Anton Chigurh like killer, clearly riffing on um, Javier Bardem's character in No Country for Old Men, played here by Sam Spruill. But I think the one that pushed me over the line, and it's dumb because it's just a little detail, but Dave Foley plays a lawyer and he's inexplicably wearing this eye patch that, you know, be, it has to be just referencing Jeff Ridge's rooster in True Grit. Hmm. And it was stuff like that where I, I, I just, I don't know. I had this aversion to these continual references. They distracted me. And and it kind of made everything seem like a little low rent Cohen's, you know, the comedy mm -hmm. being a little too obvious, the the commentary, the social commentary being a little too broad. Maybe Jr. This is what your friend was talking about, in terms of the depiction of this these militia people, and the violence. Even you know the the violence just a, a degree more flippant than you find in Cohen's the Cohen brothers movies. So I help me out here. Tell me if other seasons operate. Similarly, and maybe it's just a fact of if I had started with season one, I would have had more time to acclimate and and um, and adjust to the register that this is working in. But but Abby, maybe you know from the the, the points you've seen, the other episodes you've seen, did they seem to register or work similarly to you in terms of referencing Cohen's other work? I think, yeah, there, I mean, it does at some times feel a little bit in like a Stephen King, Castle Rocky kind of way um, that there's like just this mishmash of all of these references coming together and it can feel a little fan fiction-y. I think the thing that didn't bother me about it was that it seemed like all of the characters, in addition to the fact that they had all of these references that they were dropping, felt so fully realized. They were very vivid to me. And that made it a lot easier for me to forgive any like weird, uh, heavy-handed Cohen references, I think. It's it it didn't take me very long to see Roy and Dot and uh and even Wayne as like their own fully realized, just very deeply illustrated characters. And there are all of these wonderful little character details throughout that just kind of make you 
fall in love with the characters that you're supposed to fall in love with and then um, mm. very slowly recognize the nuances of other characters like Lorraine, who has a really interesting arc this season, kind of come to slowly despise the other characters as they really like show despicable behavior. Like one character that consistently brought me a lot of delight was Dot's daughter, Scotty, who is just the sweetest, mm. purest child. <laughs> but yeah, I, I also, I, I know it was, it, it could be a little bit of like spot the reference on occasion. And I guess maybe, you know, it's a matter of training myself what to focus on is like Mm -hmm. logging the reference and then instead giving my attention to the distinctions from the reference, which is what you're talking about, Abby, is Mm -hmm. is like, you know, let's not worry about how this is a riff on Marge, but how is she distinct from Marge? And what's interesting about that? JR, you're nodding your head. Is is that kind of the the way to unlock this this whole series? That's that's what made sense for me, right? Was yeah, uh and again, I, I just keep coming back to the idea that we just don't live in unsubtle times. Like, I, I would love to think that a show like this could be more subtle and still communicate what it wants to communicate. I think, obviously, discerning, think Christian readers and listeners would get it. But most of the rest of folks, you know, <laughs> would would not. No, I mean, genuinely, like, I think I think Holly, yeah, he wanted you to be thinking about Marge. He wanted you to be thinking about Ann Hunter. How could he not? Like it's it's mm-hmm. so obvious. And then yeah, yeah uh, for me, the whole final sequence, which we still haven't really explained, but it reminded me exactly of the final sequence in No Country for Old Men, where mm. Anton Shakur goes to a house yeah. and then does something terrible in there. And so like when when they get home from the store, Dot and Scotty get home from the store, and you see Wayne just sitting, staring, you know, at something we can't see, I was immediately like, oh, sure. oh no, you know, like. Well, let's get to that, because okay. I... I was incredibly moved by the final episode, and obviously it's because of a lot of the good work that went up ahead of it. So I'm, I'm not saying like it finally figured, the season finally <laughs> figured itself out, the final episodes. Maybe I finally figured it out. That's probably a fair way to put it. But yeah, you, as you were saying, JR, this, we think most of the plot proper has been wrapped up. And we're going to obviously get into spoilers here. So if for whatever reason you're interested in in watching this season or are not quite up to the final episode, maybe skip ahead a little bit because we are going to talk about this in detail. Um, But for the most part, everyone seems happy and safe who we want to be happy and safe. Uh, And yes, then Dot, the Juno Temple, who's played by Juno Temple, comes home with her daughter, played by Sienna King. And uh, they're just going to make dinner. They have groceries for making dinner. Dad uh, made chili. Dad made chili, <laughs> played by David Reisdahl. And no, dad instead is sitting awkwardly on the couch looking at someone. And it's revealed to be this Ula Munk, um, who we mentioned, the hired killer. And he has returned basically, um, I guess you could say for revenge on Dot because she injured him while escaping from him earlier in the season. Uh, again, Munk played by Sam Spruill. But as we've alluded, he has this code, so there are other things going on here. Yeah, back to you, JR. Maybe take it from here. Lay out any other details you think we need, or maybe just you know describe this remarkable exchange that you were getting yeah. to uh, well, and why it moved you. So again, in No Country, right, you have Shakur who has this quarter, and he, he always has people flip it. And then you know if it's heads, they live. If it's tails, he kills them. So it's the same kind of like code that's based in chance not in you know whatever else um you have this similar character who's this unstoppable killing machine as abby alluded to he's probably immortal he's either immortal or delusional and all signs point to immortal because he (laughs) literally 
there, the, we get this flashback to the 1300s. I don't quite Something remember. Something like that. Yeah. Uh, early Middle Ages. And, and then he tells this story in the scene. He was, he was very poor, uh, destitute, eating fleas off the rats, he says. And, and he's, he's brought in by a wealthy person to eat the sin of a deceased nobleman. And so we have this scene where he comes in and he eats food that is on top of a corpse that's been laid out. And by eating that sin, he takes it onto himself. And then apparently that's probably why. So he, he is this man who we are told and believe, I believe it. I don't, I don't know about y'all, but he's basically a living embodiment of the sin of other people. He carries it mm-hmm. around in him and it's, he's made that sin his own. And so now he just goes around, you know, uh, doing whatever he can to survive and not receiving any kindness. And again, is this unstoppable killing machine when he sits down with Dorothy, he, you know, he tells her we have unfinished business. And I was immediately struck by the fact that she goes, well, tonight's a school night and uh, we're busy. So you can either come help us finish dinner or we're going to have to do this another night and just walks into the kitchen. Yeah. And he's left sitting there like, <laughs> Uh, and that whole what? exchange too is so like beautiful and awkward and funny. Like he keeps trying to talk and they keep interrupting him. And, and they like keep, the difference. But they interrupt between, him in the way that they're including him in yeah. the kindness. family ritual. Yes. Right? They yeah. interrupt yeah. him with kindness. Yeah. He's in the way and, and, he's in the way and, of the biscuits. <laughs> that's right. And so so she she gives him the thing to measure. He's he's now making biscuits with dot. Um they all sit down around the table. He tells his story. And, and then Dot looks at him and she says, well, you know, it seems to me, because in his mind, it's fate, right? Because he has become the sin eater, now he has no choice other than to do the things that he does. And, and that is why, even though he doesn't really seem to want to, he now has to fight Dorothy to the death. And she pushes back and says, no, it seems to me like you have a choice. You can either do that or you can be forgiven and have some food. And so she hands him a biscuit. He takes this biscuit that he helped to make, right? That he was invited into the family to make in the kitchen in like the most kind of the most intimate sacred space where all of our pretenses melt away because we're covered in flour dust and, you know, sweat from the stove and all that kind of stuff. And then he, he, the camera just sits on him as he takes a bite of this biscuit, chews into it. And then this like, fairly gruesome but somehow also beautiful <laughs> smile like breaks across his face yeah. cut to credits yeah and, yeah <laughs> not a dry eye in the house yeah uh, same for you abby yes yeah i was uh, a a friend had already watched it and so i was texting him updates of like where i was in the episode um, and, <laughs> and he was like he just kept saying oh boy and i was like what's gonna happen is something really uh, bad gonna happen and so i was on like tenterhooks for that entire mm. um exchange because like and it is really tense the first time because you genuinely don't know how this is gonna shake out and so to have it end like that was just like oh my gosh <laughs> it was just and, and again yeah. <laughs> uh, Josh, I think for me, this is where knowing that he's a Shakur type yes. yeah. mm, uh, enhanced that unease gotcha. because I, I know what happens with the quarter. Yep. I yep. know what happens when he comes mm-hmm. out of the house and checks his shoes at the end of No yeah. Country, right? Like yeah. I know what that means. And so knowing that this is this is playing in the Coen Brothers universe, like I am a lot more uh, like scared than I would otherwise. Mm-hmm. That's true. You know? Yeah. yeah. And, and also just interestingly, they've, I mean, the season has been playing with 
those those expected types in different ways. So like, you know, it's probably going to be different, but you don't know how different. So like we mm-hmm. have Indira, the kind of Marge-esque character, but she has, instead of a supportive sweet husband, a terrible husband who mm-hmm. is plunging her deeper and deeper into debt. Um, and we also have uh, Jennifer Jason Lee's character who is a little bit like she's using her Hudsucker proxy voice and she is a little bit. Yes, like she Paul is. Newman I had an issue with that. Proxy. Yes. Yeah. I know it. That one, it's it feels like it stands out in odd ways. I don't know that that worked quite as well for me, but I, I get where they're going with it. But instead of being completely ruthless, I mean, she is often ruthless throughout the season. She gets this really beautiful um, empathy for Dot where she she understands where she's coming from. And by the end of it is like saying, that's my girl, which was one of the things that really did make me cry where I was like, she really Mm. loves her. (laughs) Um, And so we have that here too, but it's like, I think obviously that's, it's the strongest deviation from what we would expect of the entire season. So, you know, it's, there's, there's the setup, the setup, the setup, and then the payoff is so meaningful and effective while also communicating the entire theme of, of the season. It feels like that. I know. What they do to us, make us swallow, like it's our fault. But you want to know the cure? You gotta eat something made with love and joy. And be forgiven. So it's not just the process of being forgiven. It's the process of understanding what's been done to you and choosing to respond to it in a different, more Christ-like way, which I think mm-hmm. is also kind of a, a secret theme of the season is like the the kingdom of man versus the attitudes of the kingdom of God, where we have characters like Lorraine who consistently is behaving in the ways of the kingdom of man. I think at one point she tells uh, John Hamm that he wants he wants freedom without responsibility. And the only person that has that is a baby. You are fighting yeah. for your right to be a baby. And yeah. and there is some truth because, to that. And he says, she says, do you know who's the only person that has that? And he's like, the president? Like, like that. She's like, no, a baby. Like, it's just perfect. It is. And, and, and in a worldly, in a worldly perspective, she's right. Because the older you get, if you do want to have any kind of freedom, you do have a lot of responsibility, like financial or familial or whatever, to take care of that. But when you're invited to forgiveness, when you're invited to a kingdom mentality, that, I mean, it changes somewhat. Uh, You do have freedom and you have forgiveness and you have love. I mean, you don't have no consequence, but you do have more. (laughs) You have more freedom. I I just, I I love that, Dot through the whole series displays this endless creativity. At one point, uh, someone refers to her as MacGyver. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I thought more Kevin McAllister from Home Alone. Oh, for but, sure. In the early episodes, <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, it is. It was. It was again. It was truly astounding how how endless her creative abilities were, and how she could look at a situation and seemingly envision a dozen different ways out. Mm-hmm. But I thought it was really incredible that in that final episode, or maybe episode and a half, I, I, I binged it, 
um, she she turns that creativity over towards people. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, Roy's third wife, uh, Dot's replacement, is a literal Karen. And uh, there's that scene where she has a gun pointed at Dot and Dot says, we can end this together. Like, we don't have to do this anymore. Like, let's let's go do this other thing. And I don't know about y'all, but I interpreted it as Karen took her up on it. Because Karen mm-hmm. brought Roy around the corner where Dot had the gun at ready. Oh, it's possible. Yeah, I didn't think that in the moment, but yeah, yeah, it it, it happens a few scenes later, but that's yeah. possible. Yeah. Well, and again, I don't know. I can't remember if that was even the next episode. I don't. I didn't. Right. Didn't remember yeah. where that. And anyway, um, but then again, I think the creativity of like, okay, I've got this, you know, immortal killer in my house. My family's here. Uh, how, what do I do? And so she just turns the creativity away from how can I wield the physical environment against him to how can I bring him into the spiritual environment of the family, right? How right. can I well, scoop him in? And as you're describing that, Jared, you know, it just struck me that her and Monk's first confrontation was in that very same space. He mm-hmm. was one of the initial kidnappers. And that is where the violence occurred between them, where she cut his ear almost off while escaping from him. And so now they are literally in the same space, but she is, to your point, transforming it with how she is interacting mm-hmm. with him. And and yeah, how her family members are too. The way Wayne hands him a drink. And, you know, to your to your point, I think, Abby, like she, he interrupts, Wayne interrupts his threatening demeanor <laughs> yeah. by handing him a drink, you know, mm-hmm. just just making him feel at home. And Wayne doesn't Wayne doesn't really know what's going on. I think this is important. <laughs> this isn't like strategy on Wayne's part. He's I just genuinely <laughs> being hospitable. Oh, uh, we then, saw a tiger once at the, but, uh, yes. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. talking about the river where they went fishing that one time where Scotty caught a cold. Um, He's trying to make conversation <laughs> and, and make these weird things that Mook is saying seem not so weird, you know, which sometimes people do with a guest who's over and says something a little awkward. And it's like, well, let's kind of move, move along from that and not highlight it. That's what he and even Scotty, the way Scotty, you know, one of you mentioned the performance here by Sienna King, or that character at least. Watch her face during the dinner table when he, when Munk would say something weird. Rather than this kid, after all she's been through, like being super scared or or anything like that, she kind of looks at him with this curiosity, like, "Oh, I'm listening. I want to know more about what this strange story you're telling means." And she doesn't have a lot of lines during that sequence, but but I think the way her facial reactions respond to what he's saying, and just you know the details in that whole sequence, we're spending a lot of time on it, but it it really is like a good 20 minutes and maybe more. I like mm-hmm. how it is um how it's paced so that they have the confrontation in the sitting area, move to the kitchen, then move to the dining table for the meal. And part of that are the rituals that accompany it. When she invites him, when Dot invites him into the kitchen, monk into the kitchen, she says first you have to wash your hands. And we get this lovely insert shot of him, you know, a very ritualized uh, sort of baptismal moment. And we've already touched on the handing of the the biscuit, which is absolutely, you know, a, a communion bread reference. So she's she is offering him this sort of forgiveness for trying to kill her previously. Um, but also, yeah, as you guys were discussing, this larger forgiveness for this burden he felt that he's 
he's been bearing. And um, yeah, it just, it did make that whole sequence incredibly uh, moving for me. Let me, let me ask you a question though, because I want to, you know, keep being the Grinch, of course, on this episode. (laughs) We've talked a couple of times about the interactions between Lorraine and Roy. So the John Hamm sheriff and the mother-in-law just before this wonderful dining scene. I think it's just before that we see Lorraine visiting Roy in prison and only really to tell him, I put you here through my pulling strings and I've also pulled more strings so you're going to suffer. I fight my own battles and you need to pay for what you've taken. So you want me dead? No. I want you alive for a very, very long time. But while you live, I want you to feel everything your wives felt. Every blow, each humiliation, fear. I'm not afraid of you. It's not me you need to be afraid of. Now, clearly Roy is the most despicable, to use one of your words, Abby, characters in this season. And I did feel, though, as much as I was glad to see him there, and yes, glad to hear he's going to suffer. Of course, I have that instinct. I did feel like that moment was at odds Mm. with where the final scene left us. And, And it was also this undercurrent thing that's a little bit in Dot's conversation where she almost describes forgiveness as coming to those or being relieved of your debt as coming to those who, you know, shouldn't have been in debt in the first place. Mm hmm. Because you were, you know, society had put you there. And part of me wonders, well, what about those of us who do deserve it? What what about the Roys, you know, who do, it's almost this moral universe that is a little bit distinct from Christianity where there are good people who wrong has been done to, and they should be relieved of their debts. And then there are bad people who have only done wrong, and they deserve this eternal punishment that Roy is going to suffer in prison. I don't know if there was a gap there for either of you or or if that kind of worked a little bit more hand in hand for you guys. I think it's kind of a hand in hand moment in a weird way, in in a way that's almost kind of self-commentary. <laughs> um, mm. Because like the punishment of of Roy is a thing that as an audience, we expect to see. Like he either gets shot and killed or rots yes. in prison. Those are the only two outcomes that would be considered uh, acceptable, I think, for that character in like a, a three-act storytelling traditional situation. Mm-hmm. And so, to I mean, also, he he seems pretty happy in prison when Lorraine comes to visit him at first, where he says, like, this is the way that the hierarchy of man should work. And she's like, well, guess what? You don't have control over this. So mm. you're going to continue to suffer because you should be suffering. But I think it's also because to me, Lorraine is like, I think the the kingdom of man personified in terms of like the rules that are expected and in terms of responsibility and paying of debt and victims being complainers um, and having to learn that not all victims are victims by choice. Yeah, I think I think it's it's an interesting commentary in that, like, I think it had to exist for the series to end satisfactorily. And then also when you have that follow up scene with such a beautiful vision of of forgiveness, it it becomes kind of a question of like, well, why do we need that? Why is that a necessary Mm. thing for us to feel satisfied? Um, and what does that say about kind of 
where we are as humans <laughs> and what we expect as as human viewers. What does that say about um, what we should expect as Christians from art that we want to reflect an interesting kind of Christian worldview? So it's it's both kind of off, but in a way that I think opens it up for more conversation that I think makes it even more interesting. Yeah. And maybe testing us as viewers. Like, yeah. are you going to gloat in the same way Lorraine is gloating in his suffering or are you going to choose something else? Yeah. Um, yeah. JR, did it strike you that way? Well, so yeah, I want to, I want to make a couple of observations. Um, one is that we, as Abby already pointed out, prison has not changed Roy. One of the things that I clocked was that he has a new white power tattoo. He does. His yeah. Neck, right. <laughs> and at first I was like, is that, did he always have, and then I was like, no, of course he didn't. We saw, <laughs> we saw his neck all the time in the show. And so, yeah, it's, it's pretty clear even before he makes the speech about how prison is the way the world should be, uh, that he has embraced and doubled down and all of the attitudes that landed him here, he has only doubled down on, tripled down on, you know? Um, so in that way, I think what we're seeing is a, is a form of justice in that if Roy will not repent, then at least he is literally walled off from the innocence that he mm -hmm. once could hurt, you know? Um, and, and again, in, in, in the best world, Roy repents and finds forgiveness. But if he refuses to do that, then the, the only thing to do is leave him behind in Egypt and, you know, get out of there. So I think there's something about that, right? Uh, I, I think the scene would have played very differently if we encountered a weak and broken man who was yeah. penitent, who had been writing, you know, both of his ex-wives letters of, of apology, who had confessed for the murder of his first wife, Linda, you know, all of the, who had, who had made efforts to reconcile with Gator, like, and, and then we have that same scene, it would have hit really differently. But we don't get that, right? We we, yeah. we have the same cocky swagger walking mm -hmm. in, and it's only in those final moments when uh, when she leaves and he sits there, kind of seeing maybe for the first time what a world without power looks like. That that we start to feel a little bad for him, maybe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, the other thing that I think is really interesting, and I just kind of put this together as Abby, you were uh, reflecting on that scene, is I wonder if it's fair to say that uh, the mother-in-law has become a corollary character to Ule because mm -hmm. as the one who, as the one who takes the debt, she is a sin eater, right? Uh, debt, if debt is sin and that, right? Like she is the one who is now taking that and then wielding it as a weapon to punish those she thinks are worthy of punishment, I love which that. is what we're seeing <laughs> in that whole scene, right? Yeah. Uh, and so to, I a thousand percent agree with what Abby said, that she represents the way things are in an unredeemed setting. And I think that's why that scene was second to last. Mm -hmm. So that we see both the unrepentant uh, baby man hmm. and the the plight of the sin eater. Like, Ule probably felt pretty good when he left with a belly full of food. We see where that life takes him though mm. and so yeah right now she's on top of the world and has all of the power and even has control over that orange buffoon in office whatever that means and uh yet we see where her story is going to end up because we see ule and his misery and we see that the only thing that can alleviate that is genuine forgiveness which 
she does offer to Dot in a way, and I think she does offer in a way to Indira. So mm-hmm. she's not without hope, mm-hmm. right? But but I think those are those are cracks in her facade through which Grace might leak in, and we can only hope that those cracks will widen sooner rather than later. And not too many, hopefully before the 2024 election, uh, she's had a change of heart. So yep. yeah. When was this set again? It's like 2019. Yeah. That all lines up. No, that's, that's good stuff. JR. And I, I especially appreciate, you know, there's, there's this discussion, especially when horrible things happen um, in the news and um, Christians, fam, you know, Christian families of victims will come on and, and say something about how they forgive. And, and there could be a whole host of reasons behind that. But some of the response will be, well, should you, for, you know, should you forgive? And so there is this notion of easy forgiveness, which is, you know, hollow forgiveness, perhaps. And yeah, the discussion, you know, both of you are making me see that Roy, Lorraine, seen as something as a retort to the easy forgiveness. He has, there has not been confession to your point, JR. There has not been repentance. Um, and we do see something more like that in the final scene. So, well, I knew you guys, I knew you guys would do this. I had faith in you. You know, I first, I'm a couple seasons or a couple episodes in and I'm panicking like, oh my gosh, like our timeline from recording was really tight as like, you know, between deciding we were going to do this. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm really not enjoying this. I am, I'm, I'm going to have to go with these poor people and rain on their parade. But then I thought, no, they'll, they'll come, they'll bring me around. They'll swing me around. And you both absolutely did that. So thank you. Yeah. Uh, this has been really good and hopefully helpful to others who are either enjoyed or struggled with Fargo season five. Uh, before you go, uh, Abby, I have already plunged into your forthcoming book because you were kind enough <laughs> to ask me to write the foreword. So I would have read it anyway, but you know, now I get a, an early peek and am going to make my way through that and then go ahead and write that up. The book is, as we've mentioned, I think previously on the show, Films for All Seasons, Encountering the Church Year at the movies. Uh, what remind people again, Abby, the, the pub date is for that and, you know, where they can learn more. Yeah. Um, so the specific date I think is still forthcoming, but it'll be out this fall. Uh, and it's, if you enjoyed my, uh, article series on films to watch for different parts of the liturgical year, get ready because that's what this book is. It's just longer essays on, on all of that. And it'll be out through uh, InterVarsity Press, so you can kind of keep an eye on their socials and website for more information about that. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Birthed here at TC as uh, <laughs> some uh, website articles and then um, got the full attention it deserves in book form. So can't wait for that. Uh, JR, I know, I think you just you just wrapped up a sabbatical or are you still oh, on no. a well-deserved break? I just got back from the Dominican Republic, but I still have like six weeks of sabbatical left. So ah, I'm sabbaticaling hard. Wonderful. <laughs> All yeah. right. And and those creative juices will be ready to to go when you're back full time? Or are oh, you doing I mean, I'm stuff still, people can follow I, right now? You know, I restarted my newsletter on Substack because everyone's, you know, newsletters are, it's like the new blogging, right? So there I'm, you go. I'm, I'm writing a ton of stuff over there right now just for fun, you know? And nice. yeah, still pitching away for TC and Sojo and all that. So all right. Uh, yeah. Very good. Well, thanks, JR. Thanks, Abby. Um, we will get together uh, to talk. I don't know. Fargo season six. Is there going to be a season six? We don't know yet. We yeah, don't know yet. 
I think right, Noah Hawley th- has to write his Aliens TV show first. That's right. So. Oh. oh, gosh. Okay. Yeah. So you can Did have Sarah on for that, that one. <laughs> well, now that you guys have turned me around on it, um, we'll, we'll have to get to season six if there is one. Thanks again, you two. You betcha. This was the first time I watched Fargo, but... It's not the first time we covered the series at TC. We do have a couple of posts on earlier seasons of the show over at the website. So you can find those at thinkchristian.net, and we will link to them in the show notes for this episode. We'd love to get listeners' thoughts on Fargo or on the TC podcast itself. The best way to send those would be to email us, tcpodcast at thinkchristian.net. You can also connect with us on social media. You'll find us on Facebook and on Twitter slash X. Just look for at Think Christian. The TC Podcast is a listener-supported production of Reframe Ministries, a family of programs designed to help you see your whole life reframed by God's gospel story. Visit reframeministries.org for more information. Our audio engineer and post-production supervisor is John Reeder, and Reframe's co-director overseeing content strategy is Robin Basselin. I'm Josh Larson. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again in a couple of weeks to consider how another corner of our pop culture fandom connects with our faith.